0: Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It is a huge privilege for me to be up here and to be able to preach the word of God this morning. You might be wondering uh, what I've got in my little bag down here. Um, Joe has been very much like a Paul to me, me being Timothy, and uh, we've had a good relationship. And... I've decided that I want to be just like him, really. And if you know Joe and how he preaches, he always brings a prop with him, doesn't he? To preach. So you'll just have to wonder what my prop will be for a little bit longer. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about a text in Revelation 21 that's beautiful. My heart's been stirred by it, and I hope that comes out in the way that I preach. This is the season of the year when we look ahead to the future typically, isn't it? But this morning, I want us to raise our eyes a little bit higher than we typically do. i want to look beyond 2013 into eternity. And we want to see how understanding eternity and fixing our eyes on it impacts life now. Would you pray with me? Father... We come to you this morning dependent upon your grace for everything we have. Lord, I need you this morning to help me to speak your word faithfully and with conviction. Lord, I don't have adequate words to portray the beauty of eternity to these people, but your Holy Spirit has the power to take these words and make them real to our hearts and to stir us up so that we long for it. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to know Jesus more fully, that you would open our minds to see the hope to which you have called us. And I pray together, all of us this morning, that you would grant us strength to understand the depth and height and length and breadth of the greatness of your love in Jesus Christ. Lord, the gospel is what we're here for. And we want to celebrate that this morning and we want to build our lives upon it now and forever into eternity. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God who died so that we could have this hope. Amen. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this in Mere Christianity. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we're to leave this present world as it is, in fact, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you will get neither. Lewis goes on to explore some of the reasons he thought that Christians have largely ceased to think. About heaven, And he gives a profound answer. What he says is at the heart of it is really a matter of desire. Either we don't really want heaven or probably more likely we do want heaven, but we don't recognize it. You see, God made us and Ecclesiastes says he set eternity in our hearts. And we have longings and we have hopes that God put in our hearts. But when we cease to think about eternity... And try to take those longings and hopes and pack them into this life now in this broken world. It just doesn't work. We get frustrated. We get bitter. Some of us get angry with God even. But Revelation 21 is God's gift to us to stir up our hearts so that we long for this new heaven and new earth. And we think about it and then we reorient our lives around it, not as a way of escape but as a way of living as faithful followers of Jesus now. Do you remember when Pastor Nate coined the phrase, this for that? He was seeking to reorient our thinking so that we remember that this building and all the ministry that we do here is not just for us, but is for the sake of taking the gospel to the nations. Well, in a similar way, Revelation 21 seeks to reorient our thinking and the way that we live. It seeks to stir up our hearts to long for heaven so that we live with a this-for-then mindset. There's just one thing that I want you to get this morning. This is for then. We live this brief life now in this broken world in light of the new heaven and the new earth to come. Now, John's vision here in Revelation 21, 1-8 gives us three realities That motivate us to live with a this-for-then mindset. Before we get into these three realities, I want to just briefly set the context for us so we understand Revelation 21 rightly. The first thing we need to know is that Revelation was written in a style of literature called apocalyptic literature. Now, we don't have this kind of literature around anymore. Nobody's writing this, but it was common in the time of the New Testament. And what's unique about it is it's filled with symbols that seem bizarre to us because we're not familiar with them. And he uses vivid imagery to portray this invisible spiritual battle that's going on between God and Satan and has been throughout all history. Now, Revelation is adamant, though, that God rules over history and that he will bring it to its appointed end. John the Apostle is the author of the book of Revelation. He wrote it around the year 95 AD, most likely. And he's writing in the time of the Roman Empire where the Emperor Domitian ruled. And while he wasn't the worst of emperors in terms of treatment of Christians, he certainly wasn't favorable. And John's writing to a Christian community in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, that's experiencing increasing persecution and suffering for their faith. In fact, John himself is writing from exile on the island of Patmos, he tells us in in the first chapter where he has been sent because of his stand for the gospel of Jesus. So John has a twofold purpose for writing, and I think God inspired this. And It's this. He wants to comfort those who are suffering persecution for their faith, and he also wants to confront those who are being tempted to compromise their faith in Jesus. They're facing increasing pressure to deny Jesus with both their words and their lives. In Revelation 19 and 20, just prior to the passage we're looking at today, visions have described Jesus' final defeat over all of his enemies. And so Satan and the beast and the false prophet have all been thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment of God has taken place. And now the stage is set for the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's take a look now at these three realities that John gives us that help motivate us to live with a this-for-then mindset. The first reality that helps us live with a this-for-then mindset is found in verses 1 to 4, and it's this. You were made for the new creation. You were made for this new heaven and new earth. You weren't made to live in this world filled with sin and suffering. And you weren't made to live apart from the presence of God. The first two verses of chapter 21 describe what John actually sees. They describe the vision that he sees. And then verses 3 and 4 give an interpretation. John hears a voice that interprets the vision. This is a typical structural element of apocalyptic literature. Now what John hears and sees in these four verses is beautiful and glorious. And it's meant to stir your hearts up so that you long for this vision to come to pass like an engaged couple longs for their wedding day. It does this by seeking to show us first what is absent from the new creation and then who is present in the new creation Verses 1 and 4 give us good news about what is absent from the new creation. Take a look at verse 1 with me. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So here John sees a cataclysmic event. The first heaven and the first earth, that's this earth that we're standing on, and that's the heavens that we see on a clear night, pass away. And in its place, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Like Genesis 1, God creates again. Now John is drawing on very hopeful language that are found in Isaiah 65. Look at this with me as we read together. "'No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, "'or an old man who does not fill out his days. "'For the young man shall die a hundred years old, "'and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. "'They shall build houses and inhabit them. "'They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. "'They shall not build and another inhabit. "'They shall not plant and another eat. "'For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, "'and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands.' They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Now, here the Lord first gives this promise, this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And what's striking about this is he describes it primarily in terms of what is absent. He says there's going to be no weeping, no cry of distress, no infants dying. No injustice, no working in vain. And going back to Revelation 21, John's vision is similar. It too describes uh, the new heaven and new earth in terms of what is absent. At the end of verse 1, he says, the sea was no more. Now, this might be perplexing to us 21st century Americans because what do we tend to think of when we think of the sea? If you're like me, you think of vacation, nice beaches, fun in the sun, or relaxation, right? That would be bad news, right, if that's not in the new heaven and new earth. But the sea in Revelation, you need to understand, is something different. The sea in Revelation is the place from which God's enemy, the beast, arises. Chapter 13, verse 1. And in chapter 20, verse 13, it's, it's a place of death from which God brings people in order to face his judgment. So it seems that the sea here is symbolic for everything that has gone wrong with this first heaven and first earth, the rebellion against God that leads to death. We can also see this clearly too as we notice the parallels between verses 1 and 4. So in verse 1, we've seen that The new heaven or the first heaven and the first earth pass away, right? And at the end of verse four, if you look at that, it says, the former, or literally, the first things have passed away. So verse one, the first heaven and first earth pass away, and in verse four, the first things pass away. Verse four is filling out and interpreting the vision in verse one. And what verse four says is very clear about what about what has actually passed away. It says, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We need to let this sink in. If we're going to persevere through suffering and temptation now, we need to know that there's a day coming when it will be gone forever. Forever. Think on this. Death will be no more. You won't have to fear your own death, and you will never have to grieve the death of another again. Cancer will be no more. There will be no more mass shootings. There will be no physical or mental handicaps. There will be no wheelchairs in the new heaven and the new earth. Depression and anxiety will be gone forever. No one will consider or commit suicide. And you will never again have to lay awake at night wondering what tomorrow might bring. Friends, this is the good news of what will be absent in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, that's good news, but verses 2 and 3 give us even better news about who is present in the new heaven and new earth. In verse 2, John sees a city, and it is quite a city. Look at it with me. John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, do you remember in Sunday school how you would oftentimes draw a picture of what you learned about that day? So how would you draw this in Sunday school? A building with a wedding dress on and makeup and a veil, something like that? Apocalyptic literature often mixes its metaphors in ways that seem bizarre if we try to imagine them in our minds. For example, in chapter 5, Jesus is said to be both a lion and a lamb. But we're not meant to try to picture some kind of bizarre combination of a lion and a lamb. Rather, we're to try to discern what the symbols mean and how they work together. So Jesus, as the lion lamb, points to his kingship, that's the lion, gained by dying as a sacrifice for his people, that's the lamb. So we need to keep reading if we're going to understand what the city bride means. Verse 3 is where the loud voice from the throne is introduced. And again, this serves as the interpreter for John's vision. Look at, look at verse 3 with me to see what the voice says. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, now what you need to see here is that this moment is what the whole Bible storyline has been moving towards ever since Genesis three This moment in the eternal marriage that will follow with Christ and his church is what you were made for. This is the climax of a beautiful and bright thread that's woven throughout the Bible storyline, which your life is a part of and is heading towards. Now, this story starts in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God made Adam and Eve, and He placed them in this garden. And the best thing about this garden is it was where God lived. The Bible says, That God walked among them in the cool of the day. And he spoke directly to them. But then Adam and Eve sinned. And we all know the results of that. But the worst thing about the punishment that was given out for that was Adam and Eve, at the end of chapter 3, are sent out of the garden. You see, they were no longer fit to live in God's presence. A holy God requires that holy people be the only ones who live in his presence. And so the plot is set for the rest of the Bible storyline. And God has a plan that he's working out where he's going to bring a people together to live with him again. So he creates the nation of Israel and he rescues them out of the nation of Egypt uh, from slavery. And what does he do? Well, he gives them the law. He gives them these laws by which they're to live. But he also instructs them to build a tabernacle. Because this is the place where God is going to dwell among people again. And so uh, at the end of the book of Exodus, there's this beautiful climax where they, they do construct this tabernacle and the glory of God descends upon it and God begins to live again on earth among his people. And he promises to continue to live among them if they'll be faithful to his covenant. But as we read further on in the Old Testament, we read the sad story of what happens. Israel repeatedly disobeys the covenant and eventually things get so bad that the prophet Ezekiel pictures the presence of God picking up and moving out of the tabernacle, the temple by that time, leaving the city of Jerusalem before the Babylonians come to utterly destroy it. Now, the temple is rebuilt after the Israelites return from exile, but the presence of God is noticeably absent. So we're left wondering how God will fulfill this plan of living with his people. When we progress into the New Testament, we see a surprising twist. God comes to dwell with his people in a surprising way. And Eric uh, touched on that in his reading of John chapter 1. It's Jesus. It's in Jesus that God comes to dwell among people. Jesus is the new temple. That's why we read in a chapter like John 2, where Jesus is in Jerusalem for uh, one of the feasts, and he's there at the temple, and he's debating with the religious leaders, and he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John comments about this. Jesus was speaking about his body, The temple of his body. (laughs) So we see that it's not just merely that God comes and dwells in Jesus' body, but it's specifically by Jesus' body being broken when he was put to death on the cross and raised from the dead that Jesus becomes the new meeting place between sinful people and a holy God. This is the way by which sinful people can become clean and can become holy and live in the presence of God. So then as the story progresses, we find that Jesus ascends into heaven, but does the presence of God leave earth? No. No. Jesus has his new people, the church, and God sends the Holy Spirit to dwell among us and in us, doesn't he? God mediates his very own presence invisibly through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, "...in... He says, You also are being built up together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the new temple of God right now in this age of history. But this is not where it ends. As glorious as it is that we have the indwelling presence of God through the Holy Spirit and that He lives among us as the church, it's all pointing to this day described in Revelation 21. It's all pointing to this day when God himself will visibly live among us. Revelation 22, 4 says, We will see his face. We will see his face. This is what we were meant for. Michael Lawrence sums up these themes and how they tie together beautifully when he writes this. The story of creation really is a love story. The story of a bridegroom who will stop at nothing, not even the cost of his own life, to win for himself a bride and to present her to himself radiantly beautiful, spotless, and pure. The story ends with the bridegroom preparing a new home for the new couple, a new heaven and a new earth. Unlike Adam with his bride, this bridegroom promises that he will exclude everything from that new home that might spoil or detract from their love. So, the church... Is the bride of Jesus. I didn't even have to go out and buy this. One of my children is a four year old little girl who loves princesses and brides and everything else. So I just had to fish through her things to find this. But this marriage metaphor is helpful because we all instinctively know that a marriage to come impacts life now, don't we? When I got engaged to my wife, nobody had to tell me to think about our wedding day and the marriage that would follow. Every day we thought about it as we planned, as we prepared. I thought about my soon-to-be bride on a daily basis. Nobody had to tell me to think about her and to cultivate faithfulness to her. And so it is with us. We are the bride of Christ And we are meant, we are meant to long for this day and to think about it and to reorient our thinking and our lives around it. So what captures your heart? Does Christ capture your heart? Does this coming wedding day and the marriage that will follow capture your heart? And if not, what does You see, the Bible calls that when we desire something else above God spiritual adultery. Friends, what mistresses are you flirting with? What sins are you toying around with? Will you cultivate faithfulness to Christ in 2013 because you long for the day When you will live in his presence forever. So, who is present in the new creation? There's a holy bride that we are becoming. And there's our divine husband, Christ. This is what you were made for. There's a second reality in verses 5 and 6a that help motivate us to live with a this for then mindset. In a variety of ways, in just a short, compact, one and a half verses, God tells us that we can be certain that he will bring it to pass. We can be certain that God will bring this vision of the new heaven and new earth to pass. Look at the text with me, starting in verse 5. First, he reveals himself to us as he who is seated on the throne. This is an image of absolute power. This is the throne of the universe. Don't think queen elizabeth's throne here who has virtually no power think unrivaled unlimited power for god to do whatever he wills there is nothing that can stop him from bringing this vision to pass then god says behold i am making all things new now here he's speaking of a of a future reality but he speaks about it in the present tense And the reason he does this is to emphasize the certainty of it. Then God says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God commands John to write it down for our benefit so that we could read it and see this vision through words. And the fact that it's written down as well somewhat serves like a written contract that God will hold himself accountable to. It's trustworthy and it's true. Then God says, it is done. It is done. We speak like this sometimes, don't we? If I came to you on April 15th and I asked you to mail my tax returns to the IRS, and you said yes, but you sensed that I wasn't quite sure you really were going to follow through, what could you say to me to reassure me? You say, it's done. It's done. Don't worry about it. Right? We speak that way, don't we? That's what God is doing here. And then finally, God says, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and omega is the last. So it's like us saying he's taking care of it from A to Z and everything in between. The point here is that God rules over history from the beginning when he created it and he will bring it to its appointed end. He rules over all of it. Now, why does God speak this way? Is it because his character is untrustworthy? Like he's that compulsive liar who has to swear on his mother's grave to get anybody to believe him? No, no, that's not who God is. What he's doing is he's trying to bolster our weak faith, right? Have you ever played that game where somebody stands in front and another person stands a few feet behind and you close your eyes, the person in front, and they're supposed to lean straight back and fall and trust that the person behind will catch them, hopefully. It's risky, right? It feels risky. It takes real trust that that person's going to catch you. I tried this game out a few weeks ago with my kids. As Joe mentioned, we've got four kids, all under the age of five. So we have lots of fun in our house. (laughs) And as I explained this game to them, they seemed a little bit perplexed and they weren't going for it. Now, I think I've been a pretty trustworthy dad. I've never dropped any of them or... Hurt any of them, but they were not trusting me. And I had to say things like, Your daddy is strong enough to catch you. Or, Your daddy loves you. I would never let you fall and hurt yourself. And I had to do this repeatedly, over and over, to reassure them that I would, in fact, catch them. And that's what God's doing here. He's like a father who's reaching out to his uh, untrusting children to trust him and to do what he asks. God here is wanting to provide a secure foundation for our future that will help us to live by faith in Him now. He says this so that we can sing that song, On Christ the solid rock I stand. And not just a rock that's right here and now, but a rock that extends out into eternity that's secure and that we can walk on. You see, we're so inclined to put our hopes and to attach value into all the sinking sand uncertainties that are around us. But God here is wooing us to put our faith in something certain, and something rock solid. When we do this, we can begin living with confidence rather than with fear. When we have a secure future, we can take risks to love people, can't we? When we know we've got an eternity ahead of us with God where our hopes will be fulfilled forever, we can be generous with our limited time now, can't we? When we know that God will richly provide for us forever, we can be generous with our money. We can leave our friends and family and move to Brookside or to the Middle East knowing that God will repay us in eternity a hundredfold he wants to give us certainty so that we'll have a rock-solid foundation to live by faith in him now, the kind of faith that produces love, the kind of faith that produces the discipleship he wants us to walk, where we lay down our lives for others, we take up our cross, and we follow him. We have this certainty so that we can live with a this-for-then mindset. And finally, there's a third reality that John's vision shows us, that helps us live with this this-for-then mindset. Verses 6b, halfway through verse 6 through 8, show us, and this is a weighty reality that we each one of us needs to consider carefully. It shows us that if we're to enjoy this eternal, curse-free, new heaven and new earth in the presence of Christ, we must meet the conditions there's no room here in this text for the kind of universalism that just says everybody's going to make it. Everybody's going to this new heaven and new earth. Boy, I wish it were so, but you know, we here at College Park, we, we stand on the authority of God's Word. And the text here is very clear that some will make it to the new heaven and new earth and some will not. And so we need to be clear knowing that that's a future reality And how that impacts our lives now. We need to be clear what these conditions are. There are two conditions that are given. And then a contrast is made between those who meet the conditions and the reward that they'll receive. And then the punishment for those who do not meet those conditions. The first condition given is that you must be thirsty. Halfway through verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Without payment. Now, this might not seem to help you too much. Okay, what does that mean, right? But Jesus spoke in a very similar way, and it helps us to understand what this means. In John chapter 7, Jesus was teaching in Jerusalem, and he said this If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, explaining what he means by that, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water so he welcomes he invites people to come to him who have a spiritual thirst they sense this this gap in them because of their sin this guilt before god he invites them to come and he says whoever believes in me coming to him will receive rivers of living water now the context shows us that what he means there is the holy spirit So Jesus forgives our sins, He welcomes us to Himself, and He gives us the gift of the life-giving Holy Spirit. That's the first condition. The second condition given, the text says, is that you must conquer. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage or will inherit these things. Again, you might think, that doesn't help me too much. What does that mean? Well, here we're helped by the whole book of Revelation. This word conquer is used many, many times throughout the book of Revelation, and it's used in two ways. First, it describes the fact that Jesus has conquered, and then it describes how Christians conquer on the basis of the the fact that Jesus has conquered, and it's a pattern for it. So we're just going to go to two passages real quick to show you this, and then I'll sum up by contemplating how this applies to us now. So in Revelation 5, again, Jesus is the lion lamb. An angelic voice actually announces that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. And so John is seeing this vision and hearing this voice, and in the vision he turns to see this lion, and he sees what? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So we see that Jesus conquered, how? By dying on the cross. Jesus conquered by dying on a cross. And then moving over to Revelation 12, in verse 11, it describes how believers in Jesus then conquer. It says in uh, Revelation 12:11, we actually sang the song, we will overcome, how? Overcome and conquer, it's the same word, a different translation. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And what's the point there? We conquer on the grounds of this shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who washes away our sins. You see, the only way we can be defeated is by the guilt of our sin. But we who stand on the ground of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we conquer because that sin is wiped away and it is no longer counted against us. This gospel message is the ground on which we stand, by which we conquer. And so we put our trust in that sacrificial lamb of God and then we, like him, die, but not on a cross. We die to ourselves. We take up the cross and we follow this slaughter lamb wherever he leads us, no matter what the cost. So these are the two conditions. We must come to Jesus as the thirst-quenching giver of eternal life. And we must conquer by trusting in his sacrificial death for us through temptation and persecution. Now we need to note that these are conditions not in the way we typically think of conditions. These are, these are gracious conditions, aren't they? God's not giving us a list of things we've got to do to climb our way up to Him. He's offering a free gift, and we merely have to receive it. In the end, it's simply receiving a gift of free grace, and then following the gift giver using the resources that He provides. All right, so having seen these conditions, verse 8 then introduces a contrast Like I said, not everybody will enter the new heaven and the new earth. It says that some won't. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, this reality of hell, it's all over the Bible all over the new testament we can't deny it the pictures of it the descriptions of it are graphic and vivid here it's depicted as a lake of fire and burning sulfur and this is meant to wake us up out of our spiritual apathy both for ourselves and perhaps those we love who don't know christ yet now he gives a list of those whose portion is in this lake of fire I can't go, I don't have time to go through this whole list, but I just want to zero in, I think, on what the point is for us, for the church. First, he begins the list with cowards, and he ends it with liars. Now that strikes me. That seems strange. And I think the reason for that is this. The book of Revelation and this warning here is written primarily to us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's not written primarily to the unbelieving world. John was writing to seven specific churches, and it applies to us now here at College Park. These original recipients of the letter, remember, were facing increasing pressure to deny Jesus, to say, Caesar is Lord, and to deny him with their lives. And so this is a warning for us. This is a warning for us, especially here in America, as we face increasing pressure to be quiet, to deny Jesus with our words or with our lives. But secondly, it's written to us and it makes this point to us as well. You see, if God had said here, the conditions for inheriting the new heaven and new earth are persevering faith in Jesus... And those who don't believe in Jesus are heading for the lake of fire. It would be too easy for us who profess faith in Jesus to really gloss over that warning and not consider it, right? So I think by casting it this way, God is helping us to be faced with the character of our own lives. It's meant for us to ask, am I really living out my faith in Jesus? Is my faith genuine? You see, genuine faith in Jesus always leads to becoming like Jesus. Not perfect in this life, but real nonetheless. Genuine faith in Jesus always leads to becoming like Jesus. And so we need to, at some level, examine ourselves. Is our faith producing fruit in our lives? Is our faith producing Christ-likeness? Or to put it in Live 12 terms, to, be, uh, to bring your attention back to the summer series, if we're not putting to death our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, God here is warning us and He's calling us back to repentance and faith in Christ. So we see here, in conclusion, that our eternal destiny rests on whether or not we meet conditions now. And so that causes us to live with a this-for-then mindset, right? We need to think about eternity and how that applies to our lives now there is a stunningly beautiful new creation coming where the curse will be removed forever and god himself will wipe away our tears and death will be no more and we will experience the intimacy with god that we were made for This reality is more certain than the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. But if we're to experience it, we need to meet some conditions, gracious conditions, but conditions nonetheless. And John's vision vision is calling out to you this morning to stir up your heart, to think about it so that you live now with a this for then mindset. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed the gospel to us. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be, would understand the gospel, would know it, and more importantly, would be living it out. Lord, help us to understand your great love for us in this gospel and then live a life worthy of that gospel. And I pray that we would do that thinking about this day coming when we will live with Christ forever and ever. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There will be some people up here if anybody needs prayer uh, about anything. Feel free to come on up and ask for prayer. Thank you. Have a great Sunday.